Hey, welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of the Faith and Coffee Brewcast with Eric Letterman. Faith and Coffee is a blog and podcast about Christian faith and life in the everyday. I'm Eric Letterman, pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Tempe, Arizona. Whether you're driving, sitting and enjoying a cup of coffee, or doing whatever it is that you do, I am glad you're here. Hey, welcome to the Brewcast, everybody. I am joined today by a friend and colleague, the Reverend Bruce Reyes Chow. He is the pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Palo Alto, California. Uh, On his profile, he is a third-generation Chinese-Filipino, but that's also true in real life. And the youngest person ever elected to serve as moderator of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA back in 2008 to 2010. That was the 218th General Assembly. He is also, in his spare time, a husband and a father of three incredibly talented children and a podcaster because he has all that spare time to to, to give to the world. Um, and you've been a podcaster for many years, but you're, uh, the podcast you're focusing on right now is BRC and Friends, right? Correct. And that is available wherever you wherever find, you hear podcasts. wherever you find podcasts, except where you're listening to this one right now, because I don't think you've uploaded mine onto your website. Not yet, but it will be. <laughs> so they, by the time they're listening to it, then they'll be able to find it there as well. So it'll all be good. It'll all be good. <laughs> Uh, we'll put link uh, links into the uh, to his podcast in the descriptions. Um, Bruce, welcome to the Faith and Coffee Brewcast. Great to be here. Good to see you. Talk with Good you. To see you too. Yeah. So tell me what for one thing. What have you been up to lately? What have you oh been gosh. doing with your spare time? You know, sitting at home watching Netflix during this whole well. I, I just actually returned from uh, four days of being completely unplugged, which was amazing. Felt like a mini sabbatical. What's Had my point? staff meeting this morning and they're like, oh God, Bruce went away. Because I came back with like, we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And oh my gosh, this is such a great idea. Here's what we're going to do next. And you can just see their eyes like, oh man. <laughs> Nice. Stop going away. Like I didn't plug in. I just had my notepad and my brain was going and here's all the ideas. And so, uh, so I'm, uh, I'm pastoring a church in Palo Alto. I've been there a year now. Uh, before that I was, um, gigging, uh, speaking and writing and doing interim work. And I'm still doing some of that. I'm, I'm at this church, which is an interesting place. Uh, we have a bunch of full-time people, but myself, I'm 75%, and that was on purpose because oh, I wanted to still do other things. So um, while I'm, I'm sure that they would love to have me at 100% if, if we could do that, I'm, I'm really committed still to doing a broad variety of activities in the church and the world. Uh, I think it's only fair that they don't have to pay for it. So um, uh, so I'm doing that. And uh, you left San Francisco after 30 years in the city. It's, it's wild. We are in the burbs and... Uh, it is taking a lot of time to get used to, though I will say um, we are grateful that we're here right now during our shelter in place time that we're we're in, we're in the it's a manse, which is the house that the church owns. And um, it's the largest thing we've ever lived in. Um, and we have the fewest number of children at home. Uh, so it, it's 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 we're doing fine. Uh, all things considered, we are greatly inconvenienced, but with everything else going on in the world, um, we are, we are participating in, in flattening the curve here in California. Nice. Nice. Yeah. What's it been like to jump back into the past? Cause you've been out of the pastorate for a while. 
Well, so I, I did, I was doing, I did interims for about three and a half, almost four years before this, but not full time, same kind of thing. I wanted to be part time, still do other things. And some of that was because I was still doing consulting and coaching. And I kind of feel like if you don't have some recent experience and context working in the communities you're consulting with, then, you know, you're just giving ideas. Uh, and so I had, I, it's, I've been back in, in the pastorate in a more kind of full-timey significant way. And that's been really good, except I've realized that, you know, any ideas that I have, I have to get, live with them and make them happen as opposed to when you're consulting you, here's your four options go. And now I'm like, Oh, I got to think through this one a little bit more about how we're going to do this. Um, but I'm loving it. It's a progressive activist congregation that has its roots in the anti-war movement. And uh, it's a, it's, it is, they are just a pain in the butt to injustice in the world. Um, and they can be with their staff, but for good reason, I, I love, I would rather have them um, kind of at us all the time about why we're not sharing more stuff about this or why we're not involved in here or this rather than coffee and carpet colors and all that. It's, it's great. I'm kind of in my element these days. Coffee. I'm just saying can be a uh, justice. It, it is that, well. that is, that is true. Plug for Cafe Justo in Agua Prieta, Sonora, Mexico. There a, you go. A co-op that was started by the Frontera de Cristo Presbyterian Border Ministries in Douglas, Arizona. Yeah. Just saying. Just saying. There you go. Just There's a plug. Out there. Is there a, a discount code they can use from your show to... No, huh? No, because they're hurt. <laughs> they're <laughs> seriously. Oh, buy your... Co- right. Go to cafejusto.org or is it .com? I don't remember what I it think, is, but... Oh, I think that's where we get our coffee. coffee, actually. It's actually, really, that's where we get it. It's actually good coffee. It's, it's a big gold in bag. Mexico and Chiapas. Yeah. Yeah. So it's grown in Chiapas and that area down there. And then it's roasted actually just across the border from Arizona. From well, yeah, this Arizona. church, this church is they've, they were doing, I guess they've been using them for a long time. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, so tell, you've had <clears throat> what some may call a storied career, uh, <laughs> and storied <laughs> life. It almost um, sounds like I've had some scandal in the, in the midst of it. So, yeah. So tell me about 2003. No. Because <laughs> it's going to come up. I heard you're running for office. You then, man? What's that? <laughs> I'm running for office. It's all coming out. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, gosh. So tell me. So you grew up in San Francisco, right? Nope. Where'd you grow up? <laughs> uh, I grew up in Sacramento and Stockton. Uh, oh, so I knew that. Se- Never mind. Central Valley. Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah, pretty yeah. old. So 30 years only gets me at about 20 in San Francisco. Went to moved to San Francisco when uh, went to college, fell in love, uh, followed a girl. Uh, so yeah. ended up in San Francisco. But no, Sacramento, Stockton grew up kind of in both because my my main family, Filipino side and Chinese side, all immigrated to Stockton. Kind of in the as the rhythms of that city happen, they move. You live in the south side, then you make enough money and you go to the north side. My mom um, uh, ended up working for the state legislature for 25 years. So I ended up in Sacramento during the week, back in Stockton on the weekends to be with family. Um, so yeah, I kind of count both Sacramento and Stockton as my hometowns. Yeah. How's your mom doing? My mom is uh, still a pain in a good way. Like I'm, there, I, as I tell son, people, I, as, a, as, as, as her son, there are times when I, Man, mama, I don't, I don't know if I'd like you very much because she just calls. I mean, you know, my mom, right? She just calls yeah. stuff out, and I'm like, "There's, she's, 
some would like to say people get to this age where they don't care what people think. And I'm like, my mom has she's always, always kind of been, been like that. that. Yeah, exactly. It's not like age got her there. I'm like, no, my mom has always made rooms awkward and generally for a good reason. For both of you who are listening. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there's four. Uh, oh, wow. That's a 100% increase from what I thought. What uh, Bruce's mom and I overlapped in seminary. Um, and actually, I think, is that how we met? I don't remember how we met. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. That dude, that's a long time ago. I think, you know, we're, getting, we're getting old. We are getting old. Like, I, I am legitimately living into my age, which I love. I like, I don't mind being 50. I'm almost waiting. 51. And you know, like, for you to do this that. is great. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're not 15 anymore, right, Bruce? I'm not really. I don't know. I seem to be able to dive into the 14 year old me pretty quickly at times. Yeah, I, yeah. It's kind of sort of astonishing, kind of a gift. Yeah. yeah. I do. I do like middle school pretty well. And then I think my 25 Bruce, I do that one pretty well too. But yeah, <laughs> I'm glad your mom's doing well. Uh, yeah. So tell me, so you grew up in, in Stockton, Sacramento area. Mm-hmm. Um, you, what did you study in college? Uh, so, uh, there's a lot of assumptions in that statement. <laughs> okay. Would it be I easier studied. to say what didn't you study? Exactly. No. So I, I was originally headed to law school. I really wanted to, um, at that point, Why do I, I keep worked, hearing this story from pastors. I, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm sure there's a reason. I mean, I'm sure there is some kind of control freak kind of legalistic something and justice oriented. Kind of, I don't know. Yeah. But I was going to go to law school. I actually wanted to be a lobbyist, which at that point, lobbyists were still not quite awful. Maybe they were, <laughs> but I just didn't know. I don't know. They are good and, lobbyists. Uh, I, it wasn't going to be a lobbyist for anything, anything, any like any good reason. But that's kind of, I grew up in that culture um, uh, with the stepfather and I, I interned at a law firm. And then I uh, soon realized, not in kind of some epiphany, but um, my Filipino side in particular were involved with the farm worker strikes in the Central Valley. And um, the people we were representing at the law firm, I was kind of gophering and being part of, represented a lot of the farm owners in the Central Valley. And it, at a certain point, as I was becoming more aware of my own sense of justice in the world, those two just conflicted and then decided to go to seminary. And so when I decided to go to seminary, uh, I shifted all of my degrees. I was a journalism uh, major at, at the beginning, did community college and then transferred to San Francisco State, go Golden Gators. And mm-hmm. then um, I switched to Asian American studies, philosophy and sociology as a triple kind of combined major. And um, that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an armchair sociologist big time. I just, I love, if I, if I had the discipline to do a PhD, that's what I would do it in, but I don't. So I'm not. Um, so yeah, Asian American studies, um, philosophy, religion, and then, um, sociology. Wow. And so what led you to, so did you go to seminary right after college or? Yeah, I went all the way through. I'm one of those, um, went right high school, college, no gappers, no gap year. I'm a no gapper kind of old school. I just threw it back old school. That's how I used to do it. (laughs) So I was a paralegal for three years. Uh, before I ended yeah, up, I had no life. I, I had actually no life was experience. applied and been accepted. And as I'm writing the deposit check, I literally stopped, called my pastor and talked to him the next day and said, I think I was supposed to be a minister. And he was like, it's about time you figure that out. Oh, my what? first people were like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. I minister friends are like, should we show you our paycheck first? Right. And then right. You decide, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. I had three pastors, three ministers that I knew that were trying to talk me out of it. Yeah. 
And uh, I believed them. I didn't want to go. I went kicking and screaming. My friends tell I mean, me that after every semester, at the end of every semester, I always would tell them, hey, I probably won't see you next semester. So it's been great knowing you. Yeah. Like they told me, they said, yeah, you pretty much said that after every semester. I'm like, I did not know. You really did. Yeah. So, see, I was an ass wow. coming into seminary. I don't, okay. Are you uh, ex- is this explicit podcast? I can be. I don't care. Okay. I'll cut that part out. I don't out, know if you yeah. have to check that. If you have to I check might bleep it. I don't know. I haven't yeah. decided yet. Um, I haven't, I haven't had anybody say anything yet. So <laughs> it was Jay Herbert. I mean, he's my oh, first guest. True. You're number two. I, so. w- I want to hear Jay Herbert drop the F bomb. That would be, <sighs> Wouldn't that be and awesome? then I would make it my ringtone and my <laughs> notifications. Uh, <laughs> I love the man. I love the man. He's having, I mean, I can't imagine now what's going on. And yeah, anyway, he's a little high stressed. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. And then there's going to be the fact that he took time to talk to me. was sort of shocking. So. And there's going to be troublemakers. I'm part of a group that's pushing to make some more things, essential business that you feel like need to be. Essential yeah, they're really narrow. What oh, I've it's seen really narrow. It's really oh, narrow. I'm like we're not even the church here, folks. It's all internal. It's yeah. It's At least what like, I've seen. This is a chance for us to say some things and yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, what was your question before? We so, went into that? Yeah. So you, you were a no gapper. So you went from yes. high school, college, straight into seminary, straight into seminary. So I didn't go in. <laughs> so here's, here's my story about seminary. I went in and you probably remember this. I don't, I don't know when you, when we actually became closer friends and you got to know me a little bit more, but um, yeah, I went in because everybody told me I should be going. And there's a huge ego like that it occupies my body. And uh, to have a lot of people say, you should go to seminary, you should go to seminary. I think there is a sense, especially I, I, I think for young folks of color, when they show any kind of um, leadership skill, I, I have a joke about if you have show leadership skill or if you're breathing or and we yeah, think you should go to seminary. And, and I, I just don't think everybody needs to go to seminary. And I didn't really... So I went in kind of like, oh, I am your gift. Like you are, you are welcome for me coming to you, SFTS and seminary. So I, you know, just give me my church and let me start and be amazing. So uh, this comes as no surprise to anybody who's known me. Um, uh, and and then I burned out of my first church like severely, which was very uh, humbling and helpful to that ego. So, um, yeah, I went in not, I, mine was like, let's just get this over with so I can mm. go do things versus I don't, I don't need to be here. And, la, 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 la. and I think some of it, you know, there, I, there were, there are some parts of the seminary experience that I wish were better. At the same time, I wish I would have taken advantage of it a little yeah. bit more than I did. Um, cause I was ready to go, but I went all yeah, the way through. I think the back to the same thing. Although I think law school would have been easier. Differently easier. Differently. Yeah. At least the uh, cutthroatness of law school. Seminary kicked my butt. Seminary kicked my butt. Uh, yeah. Big time. I mean, it probably should have for me too. I struggled. I mean, it was an emotional, spiritual struggle as much as the staying up with Chris Ocker's reader. Oh man, I almost quit seminary my first Kudos year. Kudos to Chris. Chris. You know what helped me in his class? We went mountain biking together. Yeah. And then I was in midterms at mid, at the midterm. I went into his office crying, literally crying. Cause I'm the guy I haven't read, I've only read this much. And I don't, I don't understand. I can't keep up. I mean, this is my first semester of seminary as yeah. a January admit. And I took Chris Auger's class and, and he's like, Eric, just stop, just settle down, settle down. Tell me what you have read. I'm like, 
Pliny's letter, but it's only one page, <laughs> you know, or I, whatever I it was. Read that. I had to read that like 12 times. <laughs> I know. And I'm like, oh, I've read this. And I realized like, all right, what did you learn? And we started going through it. And then within 25 minutes, he's like, Eric, you just passed the midterm. I'm like, what? Mm. He's like, I mean, you still have to take so, okay, it. Okay. Let's just be, let's just be, let's, let's. So that's Chris Ocker year was, five, maybe. I, I had, this was two, this was 97, January. So I had Chris Ocker year two when he still yeah, believed, heard, like, yeah, IQ, he there was no reader. Year. There was no, oh, there was reader. no reader. No. Oh, man. Oh, his I reader had, was like. Yeah, I still had to buy, you know, I don't know, $400 in books. Book. And then, like, because we're reading three pages out of it. And the year before, I heard was really bad. And then yeah, it's I like, it got, and then is I just remember. Him handing out a study guide, and I'm like, "This is not a useful study guide." There's like a hundred words on here. How is that a study guide? This is like a published. Yeah, this is a published (laughs) dictionary that we're supposed to memorize. This is not a study study guide's narrow, so we know what to focus. There are oh man, yeah, I almost quit. (laughs) Yeah, but you know what? It was him and um, um, Cheney uh, who got me through seminary. They were yeah. Oh, I loved Chris Hawker was amazing. And I had Bob. Yeah, Cooper, I, learned, I, I did not realize how much I learned from him. Yeah. I, Though I will honestly, say one of one of my professors, I will not name this person in particular, that you know who this person is. I almost failed a class. And uh, uh, it was Greek. And the de- the deal was <laughs> if I got a passing grade with the promise that I wouldn't just, I wouldn't go on any further in studying the language. <laughs> <laughs> that is a deal I had no problem making. Yeah. I loved I, Hebrew. I had a similar but opposite but, experience yeah. in Hebrew. I had, uh, what was her name? Mary, Mary Francis or something like that. Long hair. I had like six PhDs. Yeah, she came after, she was after me. Yeah. She was amazing. So after the end of the first semester, I handed in my final and I'm just shaking my head and she's like, Eric, can I talk to you for a second? I'm like, yeah, we're fine. And, you know, I'm sure she's going to tell me, you know, there's no way you're going to pass this. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. just no way. So I handed in my paper and I, or my final and I, and she's like, I know that you can get this. And I'm like, you don't know my history with foreign languages, do you? <laughs> it's not good. It's not good. Yeah. And, and she's like, no, 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 I know you can get this. So I'm going to make a deal with you. If you do better in second semester, whatever you get second semester, I'll give you for first. No, and I'm like, and of course, at, in SFTS, you do the January mid right. um, Jan, Jan term, so four weeks, yeah. five hours a day, five days a week, all Greek or Hebrew, whichever right. one you're taking. God, I don't. Miss and I'm that. like, I go well, and at then I thought maybe you know I'm, I might be passing, but I'm not doing well in Hebrew. And I said, well, what is my grade? She's like, no, whatever you get. So I'm like, oh, it's that bad. <laughs> oh, 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 maybe I really am failing this class. And keep in mind, my first semester, I was on academic probation as a condition uh, of my acceptance because of my undergrad grades. <laughs> <laughs> so school has, n- I, I struggled yeah. with school. And uh, sure enough, I ended up with a B, which yeah. shocked me. But it was only because that's all I was studying. If I could do one class at a time, yeah, I would have, well, I think I would have some... learned a lot better and I would have learned a lot more and I would have done a lot better. Yeah. I mean, there are schools and colleges that that's what they do now because it, it makes sense for some learning styles. Yeah, for sure. So, but yeah, I, I would not have gotten through languages. Greek, I did better in, but I enjoyed, even though I sucked at Hebrew, I actually enjoyed it more. Part of it was because yeah. the professor was just so awesome. I just, so I like, loved my Greek professor, but I could not, I doubt the intuitiveness of Hebrew just fed right into my wheelhouse. Um, but the, 
the intuitiveness of Hebrew? Yes. Oh, it's a very intuitive. I mean, language. it's even in a different direction. I mean, like, that, so that's right. So you can't. So if you're a, because I think they were Greek, all left. I think Jewish people were just all left-handed writers back the day, back in the day. Because there's that's no charts guess. and there's no conjugation and there's like, you're not memorizing these very rigid kind of rules. Well, there's in conjugation. Hebrew, but not the same way that you like learn Spanish or you learn romance languages. So you, you kind of get to just yeah. figure out and think through what it's saying and meaning and as opposed to like these. And anyway, that's my take. That's my sticking okay. with it. But I found Greek easier just because there were so many English derivatives. Clearly not I. So, but I use my Hebrew more, which is odd. But I have more books. <laughs> I have the book. If I, if I didn't have the books on the app and the software, I, yeah, it would be. Yeah. Well, so what the languages taught me was how to use the tools. <laughs> Right. Well, that's exactly what it, I mean. And then, which was great. And and it teaches you that uh, literalism is, is just fool's play. Right. I mean, I I just, yeah. Anyway. Well, Tommy, language in general is figurative. Yes. Nothing is objective. Really? Yeah. Everything is relative. I think some famous philosophers said that. Somebody, I'm sure somebody said that before. If not, you can copyright it. So you, so seminary humbled you or no, your first call. No, first call humbled me. Yeah, and then you ended church, up, booming, made it grow, and then totally flamed out, and uh, yeah. took a year off working. Which is not an uncommon story. It is not. And I, I was 26 when I got out of seminary, and kind of again, I exuded confidence that I didn't really have. So, you know, I I could certainly. I do think this they and, call that arrogance. It's different it is, than confidence. <laughs> that pretty is, sure. That's is that different. what it's called? I think so. And I've narcissism. Heard. People probably. have told me. <laughs> People have told me. People are, oh, people are saying, uh, and so, I mean, you know, I think it was, it was, it was arrogance mixed. Like I, I would like to say there was this great tension between arrogance. that was about me and arrogance in the gospel that I believe that we should be sharing it. And I think that I still like, I, I believe now I'm, I'm much more in the healthy part of that because I do think, I think there's a huge competitive space for a gospel of justice that is being um, we're abdicating in many ways and other people are taking that space and they're glad to take it. So, um, uh, so I think at that point that was more about me. And so, yeah, I took a year off and uh, at one point uh, two of my mentors um, sat me down for lunch and kind of looked at me and said, are you done bitching about the church? (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, And, and basically uh, brought me on to start a church in San Francisco, and I did that for 14 years and loved it, and it was great. And they're still going; they're much smaller now. They're on their mm. fourth pastor, oh, but wow. still, you know, but they're still around and they're still doing things. It's still a community. It's still a community. It's very different than when we started, which is fine. Sure. Um, and but isn't then, that true uh, with churches when the pastor changes? I mean, in some ways, the the church oftentimes sort of grows yeah. around the person as much as we would like to not have, oh, yeah, I would yeah. like to not have that happen. The reality is that it just, when the personality of the pastor shapes yeah. the community much and, and, more than we oftentimes are willing to admit. Yeah. And, and the, and a founding pastor is even more particular about that where, where yeah. churches can just crash and burn after a founding pastor well, leaves. Literally your baby. It is. And I, I and left, they're willing so, to let you have it. <laughs> so when the, well, no. And when the new pastor yeah. comes, it's no, no, that's not the baby. You're doing yeah. it different. Yeah. Well, so we, I talked with a lot of founding pastors and almost across the board, they said that they stayed a little bit too long because when you're founding church, you're founding pastor, they're not going to get rid of you unless it's bad, right? If you're not the founding 
pastor, they may love you, but you don't have as much like things start going bad. The murmurs start. And here it's like, that's not the case. And so what I, I really did not want to get, I wanted to kind of leave when things were healthy and so that they could kind of weather this shift that was going to happen, you know, that's natural to happen. So it wouldn't feel like they were on a down, but we're kind of in a good space and now it's the next thing. And they called somebody right after me who was excellent, had enough of a similar personality, but really mm-hmm. good on her own. And so, yeah. um, Don Martin High was was a wonderful, wonderful person to follow me and um, just did amazing things. And then she left. And that's where I think it was. It's been difficult since then um, mm. as she's moved on and is pastoring in South Carolina now. And have um, they trying to figure out what who are they, what do they look like, what's their leadership and all that has been kind of in the last, I'd say, uh, four or five years trying to figure that out. But they're still around and they're not thinking about closing. And so, you know, again, churches don't have to stick around forever. I've always believed that. You know, yeah. if everything it was time for them, everything is a life cycle. Yeah. Like don't, don't force it, but it doesn't seem like they are it seems like they're just kind of, and it feels them. like so many churches continue. We, we put them on life support and we just leave them there in yeah. a vegetative state for decades and decades and decades when really we yeah. should have pulled the plug a long time ago. Yes. I've noticed that it's hard. That's a very pastoral bedside manner way to put it. But yes, that is very true. Would you meet with session <laughs> folks? Let me help Down you. The blood. <laughs> But you're totally right. I mean, we oh, don't. Was that not don't, my decision to make? Sorry. We, we don't. We don't do acknowledged hospice very well. We don't let people move into no. that stage well, and own that that's stage. That's our culture. And, we don't yeah. acknowledge death. Well, we're having to now. As a reality. None of us that gets out true. of this alive. <laughs> we can't. And we can't take our somebody toys else said, Somebody said that I before. I think that's maybe. the other bumper I sticker I saw. You should put it, make, maybe make yeah. a bumper sticker or something. <laughs> I'm all about bumper sticker theology. I love bumper sticker theology. What is the one that I loved? It was real popular in the eighties and nineties. Don't follow too close at any time. This car can become, Oh, the Ra- rapture one, run, no. you yeah. know, the driverless or something like that. The rapture ones. I love those. Yeah. I like, there was one that said the rapture might happen or I might just <laughs> that's jump actually out. Pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's, actually, that's pretty funny. That's, cl- really, that's clever. That was, Oh, that was, that was a good one. That was a good one. So pastored for 14 years and then you kind of, and then in the midst of that, you were also was, moderator yeah. of the GA. Which really nobody cares about other than the Presbyterians and even there like, eh. I remember one time you told me, you said, I'm a big fish in a very small Yes, aquarium. my kids, my kids. I think you used the word pond. Then it turned like to a kind of aquarium a few years said, later. Because they're, they're friends and parents because I'm around and I'm pretty active in their lives and, but I still do things and they'll see me on social media and I, I clearly have some weird audience of some kind. And at one point uh, I think our, our oldest yeah, was like, cult leader. My dad's very important to a very small group of people, <laughs> which <laughs> that, it, that, that is the truth. And, and it's like balancing this when, when it isn't like the office that I held is, is important. And it, you know, and I had great affection for the office. And then mm-hmm. when is it me that I'm occupying that as a former, which some people care about. And then other times I'm like, it's like whatever. So yeah. <clears throat> well, but you did some pretty revolutionary things. You were one, the youngest, and that was a big conversation mm-hmm. about a year before. I remember there was online conversations yeah. about who do we, you know, how can we get a younger person? And that was yeah. back in I didn't my younger tie. days too. Cause I think I'm three, what three, two, two or three um, years younger I, than you. You're, oh, you're 68. I'm 71. So we, we look, we look very good. I, I'm no, I'm, uh, I'm 50. You're 50. 
69. <laughs> but yeah, there was a year long conversation. There was a year long. So there was a year long conversation about having a younger, a young adult yes. back in the 7% days, right? To, mm-hmm. to have be moderator. And then your, your voice. Yeah. Slowly. You know, I think there were people, there were people thinking about it before me. I thought about it actually the the general assembly before, yeah. um, again, I'm still pretty competitive. So I was like, I want to do it before I'm 40. Um, and so I was 39 mm. and, uh, um, yeah, it was interesting because at that, you know, when you look at us now, right. General assembly is going to be online for whatever we think about the business they're taking, you know, just, uh, yeah. 12 years ago, um, the big thing was I was a blogger and I didn't wear a tie and, you know, we had people that really felt like having a blog was unfair connection to the commissioners. Like you're able to kind of be like, so just at the, the distance we've traveled well, on Twitter, Twitter was, Twitter new, was just we Facebook. I mean, yeah. And there was like maybe 50 well, people and, were on Twitter we at that general assembly. But a lot of the trends about how you get elected, um, and tried to use some different yeah. ways of doing it. So, I mean, it, it, we did some things that now seem pretty normal. Um, we were just maybe a few years ahead. Right. Uh, it was good. I enjoyed it. I, again, great affection for the church. It grew as I went through um, those two years. Uh, yeah. But social media mm-hmm. became the norm at General Assembly. It became a, 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 a way of communicating yeah. that hadn't existed before. And part of that was social media was finally actually coming into its own yes, at that point. Certainly. Well, I helped get Obama elected. Yeah. Beyond the. Because he was elected before. Yeah. Three, four months after me. Right. <laughs> but it was just, I mean, it, it had been around, but it was mostly the college crowd that was using it. And yeah, but it became sort of more mainstream. And before long, Grady Parsons was saying from the dais. And those of you who actually believe in Presbyterian polity pickup lines, you need to get a life. Yeah. Before, yeah. before I mean, the, I remember that. It, I remember that vividly. That was hilarious. But it and it connected people. I think people found themselves surprised to care about the denomination that they were part of. I mean, I think that that the the number of people that began to tune in online and just find themselves like I'm watching our general assembly online and interacting with people and yeah. you know, I think that that was just it, kind of like what's going on now during all this COVID nineteen stuff we've always talked about being community bigger than kind of our physical presence or our buildings. And we've never been pushed into actually living that out. And we just lived it out. I think it, it, you know, and there were the naysayers of course, and the people who thought it was dumb and I don't want to see what you're having for breakfast and la la la. But, you know, I think it, it, it forced us and allowed us to connect in a way that we, I think intellectually and theoretically understood to be true. And now we were able to actually do it. And having somebody occupy that office who was not simply, um, I didn't, I didn't simply kind of like, Oh, it's fine. I mean, I used it, I think gave permission for people either to use it or not, but it was like, we're, we're going to actually do this. So I think in that way, Byron, the vice moderator and I, um, I think we take a lot of, a lot of pride in that time of just kind of shifting the way people understood being part of the church and how they communicated. And it was, it was, I mean, now it seems normal, but it was a pretty major shift at the time. People were really kind of like, what is this? And, you know, why yeah. are all these young I mean, people I, I excited pro- about church all of a sudden? What's happening? Yeah. And I don't, I, I think like anything, I didn't, I don't think I realized that at that time, which is probably good. I mean, I think that's, you know, if I had thought, gosh, I'm going to go make this seismic shift in the way we do things, right? That's the ego talking. Yeah. No, it was just your presence and what you're into and what you brought. I mean, that was just your gift, yeah. what you brought. 
You didn't have to be. Yeah. Well, and I came out of a, out of a church that that's what we were doing. We were using social media, not as a tactic, but it was just kind of the way of life of the community I was serving. And, uh, and one of the reasons I waited because the church wasn't quite ready to have me being out and about so much. Um, and so the, in that two years, we had learned a lot about what it meant to be community, how to use it well, the nuances and, and all of that. So we could model in some ways, some healthy ways of doing it, not, not just like, oh, this is here. Let's just try it. Um, so anyway, yeah, so, it was good. So what are the challenges that you're facing now? You, you, after that, you sort of went out, you know, you left um, uh, Mission, Mission Bay, Mission Bay yeah. and you kind of went I, into I, a different. I started writing and um, I was the safe mainline person involved in a lot of emergent church things. So folks could trust me. Um and so did a lot of speaking and uh, that kind of thing. Did some consulting, wrote a couple of books um, and uh, loved it. I mean, I, I and it takes it just takes a long time. You know, I think a lot of folks want to just kind of um, just be, you know, now they would call them influencers, but that, that's not what it was then. But right. just to start and kind of how do you build up an itineration kind of reputation and things so that you can actually have content that people want. Um, so I did that for a while. And then, um, you know, I, I joke, I'm like a D list person at this point. Like there's the high end people. And then there's like, you know, I'm not quite as expensive. I have some things to say. It's more like having your cousin come over and chit chat about things and which is fine. Um, and so I, I kind of still do a lot of speaking. Um, it's shifted a little bit now. I'm going to, I'm zooming into a lot of places now to talk about zoom church and those kind of things. Um, but I love kind of holding multiple spaces as I've always been like that. So pastoring a church, um, still doing my own podcast, trying to generate some content around zoom church these days. Um, it's great. Well, and your, it. your, your book, when did it come out? Uh, 2013 or so the, but I don't see you as Asian and mm -hmm. was a great, and it was a kind introduction to particularly white congregations who yeah. had never really talked about that about race about mm -hmm. the prejudices about the well i don't see you as asian and right. you're and i and i've heard from other people well before that even well then you don't see me because that yeah. is part of who yeah. I, I mean am. i think we it, it started to introduce people to microaggressions yeah. yeah that was a huge that was a huge piece but it was done in such a way that was accessible and and invited people to have a conversation they could yeah know. i mean I, I i think the the beginning of it was clear i'm like i'm not like this is not james cone this is not an academic like yeah and my intention was for folks to be able to sit down and go like huh i never really thought about maybe i should change the words i say yeah. Um, so yeah, so I did that when I wrote a book on parenting. I've done a couple of prayer books and then I have a book coming out uh, next year with Chalice called In Defense of Kindness. Just going to say that. So actually it's coming out in October, isn't it? Well, we're in some negotiation because of all this COVID stuff has changed and shifted things and I might get bumped, but um, I'm hoping that it, it's... Tell me about that. It's, it's called In Defense of Kindness, How Kindness Can Change Yourself in the World. And I look at issues of justice and... Um, relationships and really looking at kindness as the idea that we understand people as complex and created, and then we treat them as if that matters. So um, it's not, you know, and I kind of do a whole thing about debunking. It's not just about being nice. It's not about avoiding conflict. It's not sometimes kindness is walking away. Sometimes kindness is about protesting in the street sometimes. And to, to help people understand that we can do these things that are fighting for justice without um, dehumanizing um, and stripping dignity away from even the people we hate the most. And so 
um, try to walk a, through how we do that and both in intimate relationships with ourselves as well as with kind of institutions and systems do a whole chapter on meetings about how do you have a kind meeting. Um, so kind of doing a whole variety of things that just, just wants, I want to pull us away from the one dimensionalizing that we fall into so easily um, and, and make us work a little harder um, to be a community. And so that, that's what the book is really about is it's hard work to be kind because you have to acknowledge that my, I and you are complex and we're not just one thing. Um, so yeah, that's what it's about. I'm really excited about it. I'm really happy with this. I just turned in my actual last edits, I hope, from a great editor, but keeps coming back to me with like, so can you tighten this thing up? Can This is really funny, but can you... <laughs> At some point, I'm just like, can you just go with it? Can you just go with it? But they're trying to make it better. <laughs> yeah, you have to keep telling yourself that. I've never published a book, so I have no yeah, idea. It's like, oh, the first round you get back, man. Oh, because it's all in red. Yeah. And you just have to flashbacks to sixth grade. Oh, Ah, oh. ah. and great editors tend. I mean, even those of us that maybe we think we have a handle on our ego, we still don't. Right. So great editors make sure that there's like 25% of like, Oh, this is really good. This is this. I like this. This is, and I know exactly what they're doing. And I'm like, but okay, thank you. It still feels good. (laughs) Cause this one keeps saying rambling. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So anyways, Yeah, so that's coming so, out hopefully sometime soon. So on that vein, <clears throat> we live in a, a pretty, um, some have said this is probably one of the most partisan seasons in our country. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. Yeah, I'm not sure that's true, but it is very, um, it is a horrible time. Yes. Compared to 60, 70 years ago where, we, yes, we were partisan, but they still had dinner together. Yep. Yep. We live that in a was different even, world now. 30 years ago. I mean, pre tea party, right? That was where that was the whole thing. It was like Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich is one that brought on the don't live in Washington, visit Washington. Yep. Um, Yep. Yep. Man, what, (laughs) what is your pastoral response to everything? I mean, not only the politics of what's going on over the last three or four years, well, really Mm -hmm. actually the last 15 years, 15 to 20 years as the partisan politics seems to have Mm -hmm. grown deeper and more divided. Um, but now with the current president and now we have this crisis that seems to be the answer seems to be following, falling on partisan lines yep. about how to respond and how best to respond. What is your pastoral response in the midst of that? Uh, so, you know, I do my editor, editor and I editor and I went back and forth on the chapter I do about um, uh, President Trump. She, one, she thinks I'm giving him too much time. Um, I'm like, yeah, but it's really funny. Like, I'm, like there's some parts of it that I'm like, this is really funny. Um, uh, sometimes that, like a sermon, sometimes you just gotta strike stuff, even though you like it. Yeah. Um, but it, it, even to that, what I would, what I've been trying to say is, even as we engage in disagreement, I don't have to go. I can still do it without. Uh, body shaming somebody without using even a hint of misogyny in my assumptions about someone without talking about appearance as if that it determines something. And so I really push back on how we argue. Not that we don't like, I'm not looking at us to avoid conflict. I'm just like, let's go for the things that actually are factual and true. And um, so I'm like, you'll never hear me talk about what president Trump looks like. I don't, that's, because I don't think that's that's fair. 
nor is it goes to how I understand us to be kind in the midst of conflict. Like, I, you know, I just think decisions and the words you're using are not helpful. And, you know, those kind of things versus, you know, your orange and your hair and, you know, and all those kinds of things. So um, that's one of the things that I tell, I challenge folks, if, if you can't be creative enough to argue with your, even your worst enemy without stooping to name calling and, um, really, most of us are not as funny as we like to think we are. And um, I, just, I just feel like unless you're paid to satirize, like most of us are not that good. So um, then why don't we take the higher road? Now, someone would say that if you take the high road, that's when you're that's when you can be shot more easily because you're out in the open. Um, but at the same time, I would say I, I know that people are watching and um, lurking and seeing how um, this pastor reacts to things. And I think that that is important for us to all realize is that there are, it's more than myself and my target of my words that are involved in the conversation. It's people watching and seeing, and are you giving permission or are you in some way affirming the ways in which we contribute to how awful it is right now in our, in our political dialogue? Um, again, it's not about not challenging. It's just how we challenge. Do I have integrity about what I'm doing? Because if I can, if I can fat shame somebody, why then, then they should be able to do that to me. Right. I mean, I, I just feel like I can't be the hypocrite that, um, uh, that I'm accusing others of being, uh, and that others are when it comes to their words. So that's kind of in, in terms of how, what everything that's going on now. And I, I have really tried to resist jumping into the fray around, things that may feel good in the short term, but really aren't helpful than other just in creating noise. So I, I, I don't retweet or share a lot of satire that I don't think is really smart. Um, but I will share articles. I will make commentary um, on things that I think are important for people to hear and to know and to, and to support those who are making really solid passion arguments about things. So I try to amplify other voices that are doing far better work than I am. So I mean, that's kind of how I respond. And I think that's, that's how churches should respond as well. I think we inform and equip. How do you have a discussion of the facts though, when everybody's playing with different facts or what they call facts? Uh, so I don't, I don't just because somebody, that's the, that's the conversations I've had that I've, that have been really challenging is when people are saying, well, that's just not true. And I'm like, I don't even have those conversations. Okay, then we can't really talk. Yeah. I, I just, I, so in, in my, so I just went through, somebody came onto my um, timeline. It was an anonymous and I'm like, so I, I generally don't interact with people, but if you tell me your name and where you're from, maybe I'll interact with you a little bit. And then we did a little back and forth. And then at one point I, I, I scanned his uh, timeline and there's some awful stuff on there. And I said, yeah, I'm not willing to engage with you. And, and uh, um, uh, kind of, I, so I, I basically said, I'm not going to engage. And he's like, well, you offered to talk and no, no, no. And my last word was just like, just, you know, you're not entitled to my time. And wow. um, I think that I think that is something that most of us need to understand when we're online is that people are not entitled to our time. So just because somebody says something, even if you respond and they respond back, you don't, you're not still not entitled to it. And so I've I've I nip a lot of those things early for myself and I just don't even interact. I, you know, I, I, I hear of a lot of people that still have a lot of people on their timelines, either on Facebook or Twitter, who have a lot of um folks that are spouting um, a lot of facts and things that are just, I just think are not true. And I just don't have those in my world. And I haven't necessarily, I just don't interact. And so I'm not attractive. Like I, I think the joke is I'm not verified on Twitter. Um, and I don't, I just don't think I pissed enough people off. 
like that that I'm going to attract the kind of like torment and uh, abuse that you need to that justifies you having a verified Twitter account. So I mean, not that I, I have a little bit of Twitter envy, but not a huge amount. But I think that some of it is I just don't. I, my energy is not in to try to convince people who already believe what they believe that they're wrong. Yeah, I got off Twitter a long time ago because it just was just noise. And I it's interesting now. I, I think it's reverted. Really? Like it's Ugh. yeah, because of everybody now at home. I think it's it's I've had more actual conversations like it used to be recently than I've, I'd had in the last three or four years. Easily. It's very it's fascinating to see how Twitter, I think, has stepped back into this relational hmm. interaction things, because I think people have now kind of like. I'm not dealing with the trolls. Like I, I don't, that's not yeah. like, I don't get joy out of that. But now there's this interaction that goes on. If you look at mine, I'm having these conversations with people that are actually genuine conversations like we used to do on Twitter, yeah. which made it so good at, the, right. at one point. So well, that's when get I get back on, man. Well, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> it's not worth my time. No, wait, you're not entitled to my time. You're not entitled. You're not entitled. Twitter, Twitter's you're not, not entitled, entitled to my, my time. time. <laughs> so, you know, well, okay. So you just mentioned that, you know, and that's what the church should be doing. That's the kind of response the church should have. So what is, what do you see the role of the church? Does the church have a role in the middle of, I mean, not just what we're experiencing with the whole coronavirus thing. And, and by the time this airs, I don't know where we'll be. This is, you know, well, yeah, exactly. We're, we're pretty far in advance here, but I'm just talking about the partisanness of everything. There's a difference mm-hmm. for me. There's a difference between politics and partisan. And sometimes people use sure. the words interchangeably, which is not, helpful i think i think politics is fine politics is neutral politics is is simply talking about how are we going to be a community together what are the rules how do we settle when our competing interests you know when our interests compete with one another how do we how Mm -hmm. do we figure that out we've all agreed to drive on the right side of the road that is that is a that is a political decision policy you know Mm -hmm. from the greek word policy Mm -hmm. getting back to the greek Mm -hmm. see well done well done so how do, how do we agree? Partisan, though, is where we start to stake our claims in a certain area, um, you know, where we mm-hmm. have our tribes and our camps and saying, I mean, I'm over here and you're over there. And how do yeah. how, where does the church belong in the midst of that? And what what does the church have to say yeah. to that into that into that space? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's I think there's a couple of things. I mean, this is obviously complex. Right. So I think the church. Um, has to understand what it believes about a lot of things and has to stake some claim to what they believe. And in a variety of times throughout history, there will be ebbs and flows about where that lines up in correlation um, to political platforms, right? I mean, as, as political platforms change or churches change, I, it's, I think it's a cycle of people and churches and communities informing each other about what is and what isn't right so I think the church, first, we have to kind of figure out what do we believe as communities and in a way, like from our perspective, that still values what other that other people believe something different, that this idea that um, you have to welcome all means everyone, I think, is is fraught with problems because most of our churches don't welcome everybody in a variety of ways and say the more people. But that doesn't mean that we we look down upon other communities that may believe something different. Um, it just means that the community, the particular community that we're part of, this is where we're going. And and I'm in a church now. I have a, the luxury of uh, a church that has staked its claim in a very progressive space and wants to dive deeper into that, as opposed to churches that have a, a, 
would consider themselves purple, which I don't think there are very many truly purple churches like that are, are always balancing what they might say because of certain members and all those kind of things. Well, I think they might mean that's pur- not us. purple in the sense that there are many people within the church belong to many different camps. I think that's what they mean by purple, not the decisions of the church itself. Well, no, but I, I think that's what I'm saying is I actually, I, I, my guess is that there are very few churches that are actually evenly purple. They lean one or the yeah, other. I think there are probably a lot of churches that are, are, and then they have a few people or a group that it informs conversations that makes them want to say they're purple. Okay. I, I, I we need, I have somebody who needs to do some research. It would be interesting to see if, if you look at many churches, whether they're really 50, 50, or if like the rest of the world, we've, we, we more kind of clump into our spaces than we do not. So I don't, I don't think the church for any reason, I think we may be a little bit better at crossing lines, but I, you know, coming from a church that um, I think sometimes uh, we we value unity um, and not and not engaging in difficult conversations, and then we abdicate space where I think the church needs to be speaking into issues of injustice in the world. So if I'm going to be paralyzed because I don't want to talk about something, and then that doesn't allow us to move into spaces that I think the church can provide healing or. or a prophetic word, then are we really being the church? Um, so I think that's where a church has to figure out what, what's its voice? What, where does it feel like it should be? Um, and not all churches are going to be the same in that way. Um, so I think for churches, you've got to, I think having confidence, just like a pastor, like if you can't articulate what you believe about a certain thing, even if it's not specific, but you need to be able to tell me what, what do you believe about Jesus? And I don't even want like the 10 things that you believe are all true, but have you thought about it and you can articulate where you are? I think a church has to be able to do the same thing. And in that way, I think it builds up its understanding of then where are they active and where are they moving and what do they speak to and what don't they speak to? And, uh, you know, some churches, they, you know, maybe we don't want to speak to issues of immigration because X, but we've thought through it and here's why. I just don't want churches to avoid difficult conversations simply to avoid difficult conversations. And that's where I think many of our churches are. And I think either pastors are scared of it, or you have people who are part of our leadership that are telling the pastors, we don't like, don't, don't rock the boat. And the pastors really want to, but the congregation is saying no. So I think it comes from both. And, and, and a, a, a perfect storm would be everybody wanting to have the hard conversations and knowing that um, there are some who will not want to be part of that community later. But at the end of it, I think by having them, you make yourself a stronger community and you draw people. See, that's the hard part. Yep. No, I think, yeah. Especially with, you know, we, the reality is in Protestant churches, we have declining numbers mm-hmm. where we are not growing uh, in the sense yep. of bringing new people in and people are terrified oh, losing of people. losing anybody. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I know. And it's, it's to the point of paralysis. Yep. Exactly. I would suggest. And I've, I've always. We're afraid to step out in any direction, even though we might know that, yeah, God's calling us there and we're going to say yeah. no. Because so-and-so might get upset and take their one person yeah, or two people or five and people. take their money. And, and I just, I just, you know, it's easy for me to say in my own where I am and kind of my, like, I, I could find a job, like fire my ass and I will probably, I will be okay. Right. That's easier when you have to be, you can say that with some confidence versus like, I, if I get fired, I don't know what we're going to do. Right. Like it, it was hard enough to get this call in the first place, whether it, who, whatever that person's bringing. I mean, so 
I do realize that I'm fairly cavalier knowing where I am right now, that this is the church that loves doing this stuff. Um, uh, but at the same time, I think that's, that's like the, we're in a great match where I am is that we're, we're pushing out even further and hopefully we can kind of say it's, it'll be okay. Like we, we just did for Advent. I, I love, this is how we knew this was where I was supposed to be in Advent. I said, okay, how about we do this? Let's, let's do one entire service on diving into asylum seeking. Let's do an entire service on gun violence so we do liturgy and we just do like dive deeper. We do one on poverty and then we do one on gender fluidity and did all. And I, I pitched that to the worship team and they're like, okay, <laughs> it was, wow. you know, and, I was, and even I, I knew that it would be okay, but I don't realize, I don't think I was like, Oh, they're actually, they, okay. They, they mean what they're saying and they, they, we just hadn't had an opportunity. And so we dove deep. Like I wrote liturgy around gender that, you know, I, you know, I, I loved writing it because I wasn't afraid of, I wasn't thinking about, Oh gosh, what so-and-so going to say, this is a community that has embraced members of its own church as they transition. Right. You know, they, they understood certain things around poverty and intellectual, but needing to bring it down. I mean, it was, I, it was so transformative for me as the person designing and leading worship that, um, you know, that's where I think people are missing out on the possibilities because they don't want to make somebody mad. And again, it's easy for me to say that, but at the same time, the liberation of being able to do that, um, and even after 25 years of ministry, I'm like, this is awesome. Like, I was like, okay, let's do it. The, the question you asked the church or the thing that you said is the church needs to figure out what it believes. And I think <laughs> that's where part of the problem is in the sense that are we focusing on the right things of what we believe? Like for instance, mm. was Mary really a virgin? The, right. the birth story was Jesus really born, you know, in, incarnate, you know, miraculous or right. immaculate conception, whatever. Yeah. Do you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or, yes or, or do no. You believe, yes. And are, yep. I feel like we focus so much on those things that we lose track mm -hmm. of the things that really matter, which is, you know, do you believe this person has, you know, a right to live? Do you believe this person yeah. uh, has a right to not get beat up or, or to not get fired right. because of who they are? Or do you, so, what do you believe in I, the value I, I, of individuals? What do you believe in the value of God's children? Who do you, how do you define God's children? Those kinds of questions are much yeah. deeper questions, but I feel like the church focuses on the superficial, I would consider superficial uh, theological <laughs> questions that we really don't have an answer to. That we've, we have but our think, pat so, answers that we've stuck with for 2000 years and that, you know, thanks to Nicene Creed and all those things, that's like, okay, it's settled, right. we're done. Well, no, actually that's not because those issues keep coming right. up every 40, 50 years. Which I think, I, so here's what I would push back a little bit and say, no, I actually think you do have to think about those things and have an answer for them. Even if it's like, yeah, you know, we have a lot of people here that that don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we we talk about here is and because I think what the conservative churches do really well is provide easy. This is totally generalizing and I'm sure whatever. I don't know. There's security in answers, right? There's security in here's the 10 things this church believes. You may not agree with them, but here, this is the thing. Or I don't and even I know they, if I believe they, it, but I'm going to say it because. But I, and I know that better. this church has standards. Yeah. 
And I think we've just lost the ability to to make uncertainty and and welcoming uncertainty as as a standard that provides security. Um, I just preached a sermon on um, Thomas and talked about the gift of uncertainty that it it pushes us to be thoughtful and intellectual and to discern. And as long as we're open to what may happen on the other side, that questioning is what gets us to places of hope. And then it and then it makes us hope and dream even bigger because we've known what it's like to be in this incredibly doubting, I don't believe it space. And I think it's a gift that questioning and we don't we don't quite um, we will we'll say, you know, I think questions are good, but I don't think we really hold on to it as a theological concept enough to be able to apply it to all of our theological statements, really, and to say, yeah, here's what we think about the virgin birth. We know the translation is really young girl. We know that there are certain things and that's how we get. And I think that's if we do that little bit of work that provides enough stability for people to be like, oh, that affirms what I instinctively believe. And then now there's grounding in that so that I can do this other work that they're pushing me to do around wealth and poverty and all those kind of things. So I think it's, it's both and that have to continually be in cycle. I had a young person um, who's a child of this congregation meet with me at one point. She says, yeah, sometimes it feels like we're just a social service agency. Hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I can see how. And, and because I think that progressive folks can tend to forget how to talk theologically about Jesus in a way that says our, our, it's a cycle of our progressiveness and the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that feeds and interacts and enhances versus one creating the other and you have to go on a straight line for it. That I don't, I, I think you can be progressive and then live into some, uh, into a faith and you can be faith in that births this kind of progressiveness, but it's, it always has to be a cycle that we're always revisiting and holding that tension is really hard for a community to do. And I think the pastors, we, I'm committed to like holding that tension all the time. My people who want more Jesus, I can always say, I no, look, this is, we talked about it right here. And those are like, Oh my gosh, there's so much Jesus. I'm like, no, there really isn't a lot. <laughs> like, oh no. There's like, more. Okay, you want a lot of Jesus. I'll bring you Jesus. <laughs> Let me tell you. I can bring, bring you some Jesus. more Jesus. Than you want. <laughs> well, and that's one of the so, reasons I mean, that, I think that's, one of the yeah. things that attracted me to UPC university press is the fact that not only are they willing to question and doubt, um, they're willing to question and doubt from the perspective of seeking to understand further and to explore, which is mm-hmm. where I think right. doubt that's where doubt feeds us. Yeah. And, and they're able to finally say, we do the things that we do. We are involved in silent work. We're involved in sanctuary. We're involved in, you know, feeding the hungry because of this, right. because in scripture, and then they support this, you doing that work most of the time, most of the time. <laughs> I do get the call back. You're not in your office enough. I'm like, cause that's where ministry happens. But, but I am out in the community a lot. And, and I've, and right. when I first got here, I was out in the community a whole lot. And, and they kind of were like, Hey, you know, you still need to be our pastor. And I'm like, I am being your pastor. And, and we got into a little, you know, scuff sure. and it lasted for about a year. Actually, it was a pretty, yeah. it was a, it was a pretty grueling mm-hmm. time. Uh, but what, what I realized was that was also uh, people wondering, are you still going to be our pastor? I think people were testing yeah. the waters yeah. to see, are sure. you, are you still going to be my pastor? Even if I do this thing and, and I'll be honest during the middle of it, I wasn't sure if I could be their pastor, but <laughs> right. we got through it. But the thing is that I love, how long have you been there now? 
It's been 40 years. It's been so long. Uh, when did I come? 2012. So it'll be eight. There's only one light. <laughs> it was dirt road. Southern South, Southern Avenue was still dirt. Turn, it was alfalfa turn, fields turn as far as anyone the could see. Yeah, turn. <laughs> the old cactus that used to be there by the Johnson Farm that's now the Phillips Farm. You remember that, right? I've been here two days. No. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. But the, the beauty is that I think, and what I love about this congregation, and sometimes it does get the better of us. And we've got the folks that are all about social justice and theology bores them. And, and, but I, and I try to, it, it's kind of feel like, I feel like I'm doing multiple voices at once. I'm, I'm feeding them saying, no, 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 you need to think theologically about why we're doing what we're doing. Cause if we don't, aren't doing it for a reason that is related to our faith, then we're just doing it for the sake of doing it. And I don't think that's a good place and that will affect how we do it. Whereas other times people are so, so caught up in the theology and they want to be academic and they want to be intellectual that they're forgetting about, okay. And what does that lead us to? How do, how do, you know, you mentioned the president I'm constantly now in my private home with my family, I might speak differently sure and, and we get to yell at the TV (laughs) and have a lot of fun and, you know, but in public, he's still our president and we need to treat the office with respect and I will not. I, I may disagree strongly with the opinions and mm-hmm. the decisions that are coming out of the way. Not all of them, mind you, a lot of them right now, right. but not all of them, but I won't disparage. We've had people, you know, my, my congregation tends to lean blue and lean left. And so I've had to, when they start talking disparagingly about Republicans or conservatives, libertarians, whatever, right. I have to remind them, Hey, you know, let's be really careful about not, um, uh, uh, what's the word diminishing one another and, and calling one another names. And remember that you're talking about your friends that are sitting next to you in the pew because they're here. I mean, yeah, they made by a minority, but they're here and they're here for a reason. They're here because the community they're here because they actually do. They may be Republican. They may be conservative, but they still believe in what we're doing and they still believe in the gospel. And they believe that that good news is worth sharing through what we're doing. So I feel like I'm sometimes speaking to two, like four different congregations all at once and trying to manage everything's so different. Like what a Republican is, was two years ago. Oh, <laughs> right. It's just, yeah, I think for many, it's just, you know, what are even, what's even the spectrum now? I mean, it just is yeah, just wild. I did a vlog I mean, on, on immigration and I love the, I have two images of president um, of Reagan when he was running for president and Bush, when he was running against him, Bush senior, and they're arguing about who will be more compassionate to immigrants. <laughs> Seriously. It's a beautiful image. It's, it's a great, and it's like, where have we come? Where have, where, why, yeah. how did we get here? But the reality right. is how do we got here is actually hundreds of years old and how we treated people who had brown skin and how we treated Chinese immigrants and, uh, you know, who were building the railroads and who, you know, Africans, let alone, you know, how we basically, we were the first, actually the first undocumented immigrants on this land that I'm sitting in. And the one that you're sitting in, we were right. undocumented immigrants or white people were undocumented immigrants on Mexican land. And the Mexican government said, well, we can't really manage it anyway, so go for it. I don't care. And then we took it over. But and then we drew lines in the sand and said no more. But so (laughs) this is ours now. You stay off mine. (laughs) But I think and that's where I I think the church can speak into those spaces and say, look, yeah, we're always going to disagree on things. That's always the case. But that doesn't mean, you know, it's the old faith seeking understanding. You know, yeah. when we talk about things, it's what is your goal? Is your goal to convince or is your goal to try to understand, to have further conversation? 
And I think that's where we get stuck. And we get stuck in that in the church, too. Uh, I, you know, I was just having a conversation with somebody else. You know, liberals are just as fundamentalist in their can be just as fundamentalist in their positions as conservatives. And we get stuck and we can't listen to anyone else. and We can't talk to anybody else. Yeah. And that's I mean, a challenge. I think that is it is true. I think within the church, that is true. I, I, I do push it a little bit on the, I, I think in society, the ramifications for those two things are very different. Whereas the right wing heads much more towards violence than yes. the left does. Seems so. And, and where that, where that the extremes maybe. there's, yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the hate speech that happens around um, race, gender, sexuality, all those kind of things, that that does veer onto the right of this of the spectrum whereas the other, i mean so i think there's yes i think in the church we certainly can be um um just as rigid as one another but i think you know as we kind of step outside of that world which i think is a very small world yeah. um trying to figure out where we kind of place ourselves and i think that's one of the things is how does the church understand its place in society which i think we've lost again we've lost that the the understanding that there is a place for the church and society and to speak into the common good. And we have, we have I, m- many of our churches have just abdicated the public square and, and because it requires work for the church to get to the place where they want to be in the public square and then have some common word to speak. Uh, it's just been so many decades and generations of us kind of abdicating that space. Well, and that, abusing the space um, previously to the point yes, where people would stop listening. Cause they're like, I'm not going to, I'm not even going to bother. I'm not even going to engage the conversation. But but if we don't, I mean, this is the whole thing where I watch other versions of the gospel out there. And I'm like, why the hell are they getting this space? Like what the hell is going on? Because they own the broadcast companies. Well, that is true. Just saying. (laughs) That is true. Let's be real. Um, And, and you know, and that's the whole thing where it's like, they piss me off more than any. Well, it's been a 40, it's been a 40 year tactic where there, that was a very intentional tactic 40, 50 years ago that they were going to start. Exactly. This is how we're going to, this is how we're going to take over and gain. Well, I don't know if you've heard the, the, if you listen to, um, what is it? PTL. What's that? Is that the network? It's, um, PTL. It's the one where like Pat Robertson's on. And oh, Trinity Broadcasting. Is, it, is that what it is? But he he was doing a whole thing on why COVID is here. Have you heard this one? Oh, probably because of gay people or something or what? No, no. It's because of oral sex. Yes. Oh, look it up. It's a uh, uh, lady germs, lady something. Lady <laughs> germs. So weird. That Those lady it's germs. Like, it's like, because we weren't doing that when we were like, you could no, go ahead and you put that in your Google Other search people bar. people were, but you weren't. That's a- <laughs> it was like, to, what? To, what? <laughs> but the phrase he used, it's so I gotta look funny. that up. It's like, Maybe I'll, get, I'll try and get an audio they, clip of it and include it in here. <laughs> yeah. Well, but so there you go. Just in the last minute. I just made your podcast explicit. By lady germs? <laughs> I, I don't think. <laughs> Pretty I don't sure listen. that's are not going to cover the. the are your, uh, <laughs> I'll, nobody to offend. I'll have to ask the four people who listen. So, <laughs> um, real quickly. So, where do you think the church is going yep. in the next ten years? Give me your thirty second spiel. Where I'd like your elevator uh, speech. You know, I think I, I think the church is either uh, going to be more concentrated 
and effective. I'm not, I'm not worried about growth. Like that's not something that keeps me up. Um, Or we're going to still be paralyzed by our inability to address justice issues in the world and our focus on uh, numbers. Um, I think churches that are going to thrive are going to do what they do well and step into spaces that may seem scary, but they're going to see kind of amazing results after they step into those spaces. So there you go. Awesome. I don't know if that's helpful or not. Yeah. Friends, you can find Bruce at BRC and friends on his podcast. Check it out wherever you find your podcast. Did you like how I came full circle there? That was good. Wherever you listen to wherever your podcast. Wherever you listen to your podcast, yes. Bruce, thanks so much for coming on the Brewcast. It's been, well, first of all, it's just great to see you and, and hear you, but also to have the conversation. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks. Good luck with the podcast. Yeah. And life and ministry. You as well. You as well. And good luck with uh, your, what are you in year two now for your, with Palo Alto? Yeah, I just celebrate. My anniversary is uh, at this church is April 1st. Nice. Maybe. Mine's Valentine's Day. Aww. Isn't that sweet? Somebody told me don't start before noon because if you do things after noon on April 1st, it doesn't, it's not the same. I'm like, I've never what? heard that in my entire, <laughs> could you not, could you not? It was told don't start April 1st in the morning because it just, like, it's just not good luck. But if you start afternoon, then it it's okay. <laughs> like, okay. I heard though, if you pour <laughs> lemon juice on your head and you turn around four times, you can undo all of that. I may try that. I have no idea. I just totally made that up. I have no idea. <laughs> it's ending on a high I'm going to start sending those memes out. Like, this is this is how you get rid of COVID. <laughs> this is what happens. <laughs> Pour <laughs> lemon juice on your head and you have to turn it's right, not left. <laughs> That's right. Unless you're in Australia. Then you turn left. Then you can go ahead. The swirl goes the other way. You just got to. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Hey, man. Good to see you. Blessings to you and your family as well. You too. You can contact Faith and Coffee at Eric, E-R-I-C, at faithandcoffee.com. The Faith and Coffee Brewcast is a podcast about Christian faith and life in the everyday. Check out the Faith and Coffee Brewcast at brewcast.faithandcoffee.com or on iTunes. And be sure to subscribe. You can also subscribe to the Faith and Coffee blog at faithandcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash faithandcoffee. Be sure to click on that like button. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for the Faith and Coffee Brewcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Be of good courage, know that you are loved, and have a great day. The opinions expressed in this episode do not and are not intended to represent the opinions or official positions of any of the organizations with which I, Eric Letterman, am associated. Faith and Coffee is produced by Bad Coffee Productions, LLC, in Chandler, Arizona, 